So every year, to start the year, kind of as the new year begins, we, we, we take time to recalibrate and to refocus on some things that we think are really important. And so last week, uh, we spent time looking at the importance, the significance, our need, our desperate need for uh, the scriptures. Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we're a church that believes uh, that we desperately need to get into God's word, and we need God's word to get into us. Um, this week, we're going to focus our attention on prayer, on prayer. And we're going to particularly look at the question, why do we struggle to pray? Why don't we pray? Uh, I spent some time this week looking at some statistics. According to a 2019 Medium article, Roughly 45% of the world's population uses social media. So that's about 3.5 billion people in the world. There's about 7.8 billion people in the world. Uh, About 45% of that has access to social media and uses social media. And the average time spent on social media each day is 2 hours and 23 minutes. 2 hours and 23 minutes spent on average on social media. You can... Go ahead and check your screen time stats on your phone to see if you're above or, or below that average. So just so we're clear, that's 16 and two-thirds hours a week, which adds up to 36 days a year the average person spends on social media. In 2018, TechCrunch reported that U.S. adults are now spending almost six hours per day on video. Five hours and 57 minutes to be exact. Now this includes time spent watching TV or time uh, watching a video through an app or a mobile website on a smartphone, time maybe watching your DVR, but it adds up to roughly six hours a day watching videos on a screen. That's 42 hours a week watching TV. Now, by comparison, and this is a little bit of a dated article, but in 2014, The Telegraph posted an online article about the daily habits of Americans. And it stated that of those who engage in religious activity, which was roughly half of the people they, um, they polled, the average American spends between 8 and 16 minutes in prayer or religious activity. In a different survey uh, done by the Evangelical Alliance, 87% of those who were polled by the Evangelical Alliance agreed that every Christian needs to spend time with God on a daily basis and that without spending that time with God, their faith will suffer. And yet 42% of those who were polled said that they find it difficult to find time on a regular disciplined basis to pray and to read the Bible. Of the over 1,500 people that were surveyed, Only 31% said they set aside substantial time every day to pray. So just to recap, the average person spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Spends six hours a day watching a screen. And spends ten minutes in prayer, maybe. Any of us feeling exposed by these statistics? Why is it such a struggle for us to pray? 
I mean, we know it's important, right? Like we know, we know if I were to ask any one of you, like what are the most important disciplines for your spiritual formation, for your inner life? What are the things that you have to give yourself to? I think all of us would say, well, I need to give myself to Bible reading and prayer. And the third would be to God's people, to, to doing what we're doing this morning. I mean, we know it's important. And my goal this morning is, is, is not to, to shame us for our lack of prayer. That's, that's not my goal. In fact, just 16% of pastors report being very satisfied with their prayer lives. I, I would not be among that 16. I, I would admit to you this morning that I long for a deeper prayer life. I'm, I'm in this struggle with you. And so the struggle to pray is not just limited to parishioners. It's, it's not even limited to pastors. You know that Jesus' own disciples struggled to pray? I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to see this vividly this morning, how even Jesus' own disciples struggled to pray. As you turn to Matthew 26, and we should have the words on the screen here, uh, let me just give us a little context before we dive in, because we're going to be jumping in verse 36. Jesus has just finished eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And though they've been with him for like three years now, journeying with Jesus, doing ministry with Jesus, um, he, he's just told them, these 12 men, he's just told them that one of them is going to betray him and hand him over. And that the rest of them, when he's handed over, are going to scatter and abandon him. So think about this. Jesus knows that his death is, is imminent, and he feels the weight of the hour. And Jesus longs to pray. He wants to go spend time talking to the Father. So let's pick up in verse 36, now that we have some context. It says this. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. 
the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. The word of God for the people of God. So I want you to imagine this scene with me. The the disciples and Jesus have just shared the Passover meal together. This meal would have taken a couple of hours. There was a ritual that went with this meal. It, It would have taken some time to finish. And so now it's getting late into the night, but Jesus wants to go to one of his his favorite places to pray, the the garden called Gethsemane. And, And when they get there, he tells eight of the disciples, remember by this point, Judas has already left, to go betray Jesus. And so he, he, he tells eight of the disciples uh, to wait in a certain place while he goes deeper into the garden to pray. But then he brings with him Peter and James and John. And they go a little deeper into the garden with him. And he tells Peter and James and John that he is deeply grieved to the point of death. And he says to him, I want you to remain here. I want you to stay here with me and stay awake with me while I pray. And then Jesus goes even a little bit further into the garden and he hits his knees and he begins to earnestly pour out his heart to the Father. Luke, in his account of this scene, gives us this, thing, this incredible detail that Jesus was so distressed in his praying that beads of blood appeared like sweat on Jesus' brow. Jesus was literally praying so hard that scientists tell us that he, he likely bursted a blood vessel in his head, and so it appeared that he was sweating drops of blood. That is deep, distressful anxiety. Meanwhile, within minutes... Peter, James, and John are snoring. They couldn't make it even a few minutes with Jesus in prayer. And so this morning, I want us to ask the question, why is it that we can relate so much to Peter, James, and John? And again, the goal here is not to create guilt or shame. It's to, it's to help us see the reasons why we fail to pray in hopes of stirring us up to pray. So we'll notice four reasons this morning why Peter and James and John struggled to pray. Because the truth is, they're the same reasons why we struggle to pray. So reason number one, we struggle to pray because we don't see prayer as warfare. We struggle to pray because we don't see prayer as warfare. One of the things that becomes very clear as you read the Gospels is that when the disciples began to follow Jesus, when they identified Jesus as Messiah, they didn't fully understand what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah and what kind of kingdom Jesus was coming to bring in. When Jesus began to declare that the kingdom of God had arrived, and he, he began to call people to repent and to believe the good news, the disciples likely understood that to mean that Jesus was about to take Israel back to her days of glory. They expected Jesus to lead Israel out from underneath the thumb of the Romans, and at some point they probably expected Jesus to lead them into a battle to actually overthrow their enemies and to bring neighboring nations into submission. I mean, how does a kingdom come without war? 
It's funny that in just a little while, within this same scene of Scripture, a battalion of soldiers will arrive and converge on Jesus in the garden to arrest him. And you know what's going to happen? Peter is going to grab a sword and he's going to chop a soldier's ear off. Peter, it seems, was most certainly ready for a battle. He was ready to go to war with Jesus. Just not to pray. Because he failed to see that prayer is the weapon of the war that Jesus is engaged in. Prayer is the weapon. Jesus came not to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin and death. Jesus came to usher in the rule and the reign of God over the lives of men. He came waging a spiritual war for the hearts and the lives of people. Jesus would soon tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would have a legion fighting for me. But my kingdom's not of this world. And what the disciples couldn't see was that on their knees in the garden, Jesus was waging a war. The reality is we often don't see prayer as the most effective means by which to do battle with the enemy. I mean, this is so clear in the way that we tend to think about church, right? When we think about the best churches, what what are the kinds of things that come to our minds? What are the kinds of things that we think that we need? We need a dynamic speaker. We need an amped up band. We need killer programs and ministries and lights and the right atmosphere. And so we plan events. We line up speakers. We, We amp up our musicians. But when it comes time to pray... When it comes time to pray, we're often so busy doing the things that we find ourselves exhausted and we go to sleep. Because we don't see prayer as the primary weapon of our warfare. Or when it comes to fighting sin, how quickly do we run to prayer? Sometimes guys come to me with a pornography issue. And the impulse is to say, well, you need to get it. You need to get some accountability software. You need to get a filter. Those are good things. But you know what we need to do? We need to get on our knees and we need to cry out to God together. That's what we need to do. One of my former pastors, my, he said, I've stopped telling guys to get accountability software. I've started saying to them, let's fast together. The author of Hebrews says, In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. He calls for an earnestness about our praying and dealing with sin. And isn't this exactly what we find our Lord doing? Jesus is literally on his knees, sweating drops of blood in a battle against the sins of men. Not even his own sin, our sin. We contrast this with Peter who Jesus has just warned. If you go back and you read the verses just prior to to this scene, Jesus has just warned, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. 
Jesus tells Peter this on the heels of telling the disciples, the, sh- the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter goes, not me, Lord. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And it struck me as I studied this text this week that three different times Jesus goes back to Peter and he says, Peter, pray with me. Peter, watch with me. Peter, don't go to sleep. And within hours, three different times, Peter would deny his Lord and Master. Maybe we fall into temptation because we're not on our knees praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When it comes to the brokenness in our world, the things that we see in our city, in our nation, in our world, that grieve us is prayer the way that we aim to see things change. Often our church is organized and we get people to the polls. We, we gather groups and protest and we hand out bumper stickers. We, we write blogs. We certainly tweet. We might give toward a cause. We might even maybe, just maybe, engage in the ministry. The question is, do you pray? Do you pray about the brokenness that you see? Do you pray, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? God, we want you to manifest your kingdom. What the world needs more than us engaging in politics or engaging in discourse is for us to get on our knees. Prayer is the primary means of waging war against the spiritual forces of darkness. The Apostle Paul tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and put on the shield of faith and and the shoes of readiness and put on the, the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. But how do we actually do any of that and go to war? Well, Paul tells us in verse 18, Pray at all times in the Spirit. Oswald Chambers famously says, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And we fall into prayerlessness when we lose sight of the fact that prayer is the greater work. What was at stake in the Garden of Gethsemane that night? was a war for the souls of men. If Jesus didn't bear the cup of wrath, uh, the world could not be saved from the curse of sin. Satan, more than anything, wanted Jesus to reject the Father's will and to walk away from the cross. Isn't that what Satan tempted Jesus with initially in the desert? Jesus, you can have all of the kingdoms of the world. They'll all be yours. It's a battle of submission to the will of the Father, which reminds us of another garden, the Garden of Eden, where the first Adam was tempted not to submit to the will of the Father, to go his own way. The temptation in these two gardens is the same. And here the snake is again, This time, 
with the second Adam, tempting him to rebel against the will of the Father. Jesus is under tremendous stress, provoked at the thought of the impending suffering of of crucifixion and the wrath of Almighty God against sin being poured out on him. And under such agony, Jesus cries out, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup represents God's wrath. Can you see the ironic juxtaposition here? Jesus, so earnest, and feet away, James and John and Peter curled up in the fetal position, sleeping. Somehow, the earnestness of this situation was lost on them. And that's the second reason why I think we struggle to pray, is because we don't recognize the earnestness of the situation. Now, I have some good news for us this morning. The good news of this story is that Jesus endured the agony. Right? He, he prays, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus succeeds. He succeeded in the desert. Now he succeeds in the garden. He drank the full cup of the judgment of God. To the dregs, he drank it down. Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins. He died for the sins of the world. Jesus succeeded. That's the good news. But the reality is the situation remains earnest. Because although Jesus has died for for the salvation of mankind, the salvation provided by Jesus can only be received by faith in his name. And church, we don't like to think about this. There are so many people in our world that don't know the name of Jesus. According to Joshua Project, there are still, in 2020, 7,367 people groups, that is ethno-linguistic groups, people that have a common culture, a common language, a common custom, 7,367 people groups with little to no access to the gospel. They have no way of knowing that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. They have no way of knowing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and has given us the hope of eternal life. And without knowing this Jesus, they are lost in their sins. And the truth is right here in Birmingham, There are people that don't know Jesus, lots of them. They might be acquainted with religion. They might be familiar with the name Jesus. But this, by the way, is why we use in our vision statement the language real Jesus. Because there there are a lot of false Jesuses out there. There are people in our city that need to know the real Jesus. They need to know the gospel of Jesus. Church, I just wonder sometimes, how earnest are we in praying for our lost neighbors? How much are you on your knees praying for your friends to come to know Christ? Do you pray for God's mercy? Do you you pray for him to be patient? 
You see what's at stake? I, I think a lot of us are, are, are like Peter and James and John, that despite the earnestness of the situation, some of us are sleeping on it. We're sleeping on the reality of heaven and hell because it's uncomfortable for us to think about. We've lost sight of eternity. We've lost sight of what truly matters. We're we're busy with our jobs, and we're busy with our schoolwork, and we're busy with our outings, and we're busy with Little League, and we're busy with Netflix, and and maybe we're even busy with church-related things, but in all of our busyness, I think it's maybe leading us to weariness, and in our weariness, we're too tired to keep our eyes open to pray. And that's what happened here, right? These disciples are physically tired. Their bodies were exhausted and weak. That's the third reason why we don't pray oftentimes. Because our flesh is weak. Have you ever had this phenomenon? You're actually going to try to pray. And so you, you close your eyes and you begin to pray. And, and no matter how hard you want to, like you are destined for sleepy land. Like you are destined for sleep. It's easy to bag on these disciples, but they were humans just like you and me. They had been going nonstop ministry. It's late into the night. They're tired, but I don't want you to miss this. Jesus was a human too. Just like you and me, and Jesus was tired. In fact, Jesus was likely more tired. If you've ever felt stress before, you know it's exhausting Jesus felt the weight of the cross on him and somehow stayed awake to pray. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus was made like us in every respect. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that, that he is a high priest able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tried and tested in every way as we have. The thing that distinguishes Jesus from Peter, James, and John is verse 41, where Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, there's this battle being waged between the flesh and the spirit in each of us. The flesh is that natural, that carnal part of our our will, and the spirit is the will of God that's being renewed in us. And the question that Jesus puts before the disciples, that he puts before us is, are you submitting to the will of the flesh or are you submitting to the will of the Spirit? Jesus surrendered his life to the Spirit of God in such a way that the Spirit's power in him conquered even his biological impulses. Think about that. Jesus was so in tune and so surrendered to the Spirit of God that that the Spirit in him was greater than the the biology in him. Now, I want to be clear here. Sleep is not evil. Sleep is not sinful. Sleep is good. You are not God. You should not try to be. So you should get some sleep. Part of what's probably here is a message of priorities, and trimming some fat out of your life because you have limited bandwidth. My childhood pastor, Brother Mickey Dalrymple, used to say, boy, sometimes the most holy thing you can do is take a nap. And I think that's good theology. But listen to me, there are going to be times, there are going to be times when you are tired and you want to sleep, but you know 
that what you need even more than sleep is to spend some time with God. There are going to be times where you are engaged in a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Maybe it's not tiredness. Maybe it's lust or maybe it's hunger. And everything in your biological makeup is telling you to feed that craving. That that is what you need most. And yet God's spirit is in you telling you that what you need is to lay hold of God in prayer. The Apostle Paul says, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We struggle to pray when we live in the weakness of our flesh, when we're just carried along by our carnal impulses and our carnal cravings, failing to recognize that we have been adopted by God. We have been given his spirit within us, and we have intimate access to his presence. We can call God Abba, Father, Daddy. Peter, James, and John didn't pray because they failed to see prayer as warfare. Because they didn't recognize the earnestness of the situation. Because they were physically weak and not spiritually minded. But lastly, and ultimately, their failure to pray was a failure to recognize the incredible invitation of fellowship that had been extended to them. I want you to think about this. This is Jesus. We confess Jesus to be God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, the Word incarnate, the Messiah. We just celebrated this season. The one that Peter, James, and John saw transfigured before their eyes on the mountain. The one who they saw with his own hands heal the sick and make the lame walk and the blind see and the dead live. Here is Jesus who says to Peter, Peter, stay awake with me. Come with me. Come further into the garden with me. Watch and pray. What an incredible invitation. God in the flesh. Only three men in all of humankind got this invitation. And somehow the significance of this, it just slips right past their minds. They don't see the profound nature of Jesus' invitation. And this is is my fear, church. One of the reasons we don't pray is is that we don't recognize the profound nature of Christ's invitation for us to fellowship with him. You know he doesn't owe you that, right? You are not owed that invitation. You have not earned that invitation. You do not deserve that invitation. And yet the God of the universe has said, come with me. Sup with me. Commune with me. Let's go deeper into the garden. We struggle to pray because the invitation of Jesus is lost on us. 
I think if we're honest, often we see prayer as a chore to be fulfilled rather than a joyful relationship to be experienced. The call to pray leads more to a sense of guilt over having not done it the previous day than it does an awe-inspiring opportunity to fellowship with Christ. And fundamentally, what this means is that we do not understand the person who has beckoned us to commune with him. This, this, friends, is Jesus. He created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you intimately. And this Jesus robed himself in flesh taking the form of mankind, enduring all the trials of life so that he could empathize with you as a human. This is the one who died for you, who rose for you. He's the victor. He is the champion. He's the greatest of all time. We spend a lot of time talking about who's the greatest of all time in this or that or the other. Jesus is the greatest of all time. There is no debate. There is no question. The greatest of all times, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, this is the one that says to us, Come with me. Watch with me. Pastor John Piper says, a failure in our prayer life is generally a failure to know Jesus. What a privilege. What a privilege to join Jesus in the garden of prayer and to pour out your heart to the Heavenly Father. Try to imagine if, if, if your favorite actress or actor held a contest for one lucky fan to get to spend an hour with him or her over coffee. You're probably imagining your favorite actor or actress right now. How excited would you be if you won? What questions would you ask? Think about how quickly that hour would go by. And here's Jesus, your maker, your redeemer, saying to you, come into the garden. Come pray with me. You know, there are some who have never heard that invitation. They don't know their creator. They don't know the one who died for their sins. but, But you... Do. You do know him. You have been given that invitation. Don't let that privilege be lost on you. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing that invitation for the first time. The God of the universe who made you wants to know you and have relationship with you through his son, Jesus. And he's saying to you this morning, come. Come with me into the garden of prayer. I want to know you. I died to rescue you from your sins. I rose from the dead to conquer death for you. I want to set you free. And the way that you're set free is to know him and to have relationship with him. Don't sleep on that invitation this morning. Come to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today and you feel the heaviness of this message. You're you're convicted over your prayerlessness, but you don't know what to do about it. Listen to me as we close. The answer to conviction 
over your weakness in prayer is not to resolve to pray more. And Man, I'm going to do better and to make promises to God. I'm going to pray more, God. No, you won't. Your flesh is weak. Let me give you some hope. These disciples who couldn't pray one hour with Jesus are the same guys who led a prayer service in Acts chapter 4 that was so lit, as the kids say, that the foundations of the place where they were praying was shaken. They prayed an earthquake. (laughs) What was the difference? At Pentecost, these men received the Holy Spirit. They received power from on high. Power to pray. Romans 8.26 tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper who helps us to pray even when we don't know how. That the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you have made the confession that Jesus is your Lord and Master, the promise of the gospel, Ephesians 1.13, says that when you believed, you received, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. The Holy Spirit helps you to know how to pray. And so today, the response to this message is not, I'm going to do better and I'm going to try harder. It's to get on your knees and to say to the Holy Spirit, awaken within me a hunger to know God. Awaken within me to commune with God. Give me what I need, Spirit, today to to, to pray the way that you long for me to pray. Ask him to awaken within you a desperation and a dependence upon God. Say to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, I know that prayer is the way that I wage war. I know that prayer is how I advance the kingdom. I know that prayer is how I'm going to fight temptation. I know that prayer is how I'm going to battle the flesh. I know that prayer is how I'm going to know and commune with God. So give me the spirit of adoption, Holy Spirit. Help me to know whose I am. Help me to know that I'm a child of God, that I can draw near to God and cry, Abba. Go to God the way a child goes to his daddy and talk to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would come And that your spirit would give us a deep sense that we are your children. God, that we might reach out our hands the way a three-year-old reaches his hands up, holds his arms up to his daddy, just hoping to be picked up. That, God, we would posture ourselves like that with you. And I pray that we would learn what it is to crawl up in your lap, so to speak. And to talk with you. God, we truly can tell you everything. We can share our struggles with you. We can share our hurts with you. We can share our hopes with you. We can share our fears with you. We can share our needs with you. You are a good father. And you delight to listen to the voice of your children talking to you. 
And God, you promised to give us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of your son, Jesus. And so I pray that we would grow to know your son more and more intimately than we ever have before through communion with him in the garden of prayer. Spirit, we thank you that even when we don't know what to pray, you pray for us and you pray with us and you intercede on our behalf. So, Spirit, this morning we pray that you would unite us to the heart of the Father. And God, even now, as we just create some space this morning to respond to this message the only appropriate way, which is to pray. God, we pray that you would meet with us now. Hear our, hear our cries, God. Hear our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.